Would you open your Bibles to James, the book of James, chapter 3? You should be able to find it pretty quick now. Uh, verses 13 through 18. The last two weeks we've studied the same text uh, as we are asking for and pursuing the wisdom from above. And we've noted that wisdom involves an understanding of, of God and of uh, ourselves and of reality that, sh- that shapes our hearts and the dispositions of our heart to be a certain way and, and then applies to our actions, to how we act in certain ways. In the last two weeks, we've seen how a depth of, this depth of understanding makes us meek and it makes us pure. And today we'll see that the wisdom from above is marked by gentleness, peacefulness, and fullness of mercy. So let's look at the text now. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 says this. <clears throat> Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In this text, James addresses a key distinction between the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below. Uh, A distinction that's an an important corrective to common distortions of what people think of as wisdom. So, because there are people who think that they are wise, who think they see what other people can't, and then they use that insight and wisdom to cut others down mercilessly and become impatient with people who just don't get it. There's many who quarrel and condemn in the name of discernment. And people who, as Taylor Swift once keenly observed, are casually cruel in the name of being honest. Such behavior is anything but wise in the way James talks about wisdom. There are those who joke rudely and sarcastically, and roll their eyes judgmentally because they think they have a common sense that others lack. But in their unkindness toward foolishness, they become fools themselves because they turn their back on the wisdom from above, which James tells us is peaceable and gentle and full of mercy. These marks of true wisdom will make us an unusual and surprising kind of people in this world. If we grow into true wisdom, the wisdom from above, we will develop peaceable, gentle, merciful hearts that seem as though they are from another world. 
You may have already met one or two of these truly wise people, though you may not have thought of them as wise until, this, until today because they don't draw attention to themselves. But they do leave you feeling loved and listened to. They have, their, their, their speech and their countenance is different from ours. It's brighter and warmer. They have a quiet strength and a calmness that's almost contagious. And an ease with which they enjoy life as though they're free from the things that weigh us down. They love you more than other people do, but they need you less. They are strangely unbothered by so much that bothers us. And sometimes strangely bothered by things that don't really bother us. But even their concern is always tempered with a hope that makes it less bothersome. And you find yourself wanting to hear their perspective on things. Not because you think it will perfectly align with yours, but actually because you suspect it might be different. And you know you probably won't hear it unless you specifically ask. And they seem to see what people need rather than what they deserve. And they're so generous with their kindness that you wonder where it all comes from. And you'd be tempted to be envious of them if they didn't make you yourself feel so valued and therefore valuable. This is the kind of weird and wonderful people I long for us to become. And the weirdest and most wonderful aspects of wisdom are the ones we're talking about today. Gentleness, peaceableness, and mercy. So what does it mean to be gentle? Let's read the other four places uh, this word is used in the New Testament to get a better understanding of it. So 1 Timothy 3 says that an overseer or leader in the church must not be violent, but gentle, and not quarrelsome. So here, gentleness is nonviolent and not quarreling. In Titus 3, Paul says to tell the congregation to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So here, gentleness is again not quarreling, but also not speaking evil of people, being very courteous towards people rather than rude, and then in 1 Peter, servants are told to be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. So there, gentle is paired with good and contrasted with unjust. So gentleness is being good and being just. So putting all of this together, we see that gentleness is an avoidance of quarreling, abstaining from violence, refusing to speak evil of people. It's also being courteous toward all people being good, and being just. And that's three of the texts. There's a fourth, and this one's my favorite, Philippians 4. But the word is translated a little different. In the ESV, the translation I'm using, it's trans same Greek word, but it's translated reasonableness. Okay, So he says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand means Jesus is near. That's the reality that he says undergirds the command to let your gentleness be known to everyone. Other, uh, other translations say graciousness, reasonableness, gentleness. And so if we put all those together, I think we have an understanding of what he's saying. He's saying be reasonable with everyone. Be gracious with everyone. Be gentle with everyone. 
Treat people the way that you would treat them if Jesus were right beside you. Because he is. Remember, the wisdom from above is a kind of understanding of reality that changes your heart and your behavior. And to the Apostle Paul, the thing that we need to understand about reality is that, that would make us gentle is the truth that the Lord is at hand. Jesus is near. He's right there when you lash out or pile on, when you make fun or roll your eyes, when you yell or hit or gossip or slander, when you act rudely or disrespectfully, when you speak harshly and unkindly, would you act that way if he were right there? He is right there. One translation of this word is actually appropriateness, acting appropriately. But that word is somewhat dependent on context, isn't it, right? Appropriate to what? And so I love that the Paul, Paul the Apostle uses it when talking about the nearness of our Lord. Appropriate to what? Appropriate to the presence of the king when dealing with his children. If a king were present with his little princesses and princes, with what care would you deal with them and talk with them and play with them with the utmost care and gentleness, right? This is the understanding that makes us gentle. This is the wisdom from above. There are people who speak and treat others harshly and in response to what they call stupidity. But is it not just as stupid to deal harshly with an heir or potential heir to the throne in the presence of a king? That would be stupid. But we all quarrel and act harshly at times. One thing I, I ask myself about gentleness is what, what makes people not be gentle? Uh, because, I mean, I mean the, and we'll just use ungentleness as a catch-all term for those that. Uh, so when I, what ways of thinking leads someone, especially a Christian, to act in ways that are ungentle? Because in theory, we all ought to value this characteristic. We, because, I mean, it's one of the main ways Jesus described himself. And it's, the Bible says that it's the very outworking of God, the Holy Spirit within us, a fruit of the Spirit. So what are we missing or misunderstanding when we lack gentleness? I started my inquiry into this uh, by looking at examples of my own life when I lack gentleness. Uh, so I'll open up to you guys a little bit. And if you're on the hunt for sin, here's a tip. Uh, your relationship with your spouse is a good place to look. I looked there and I realized a few things. I, I often try to justify my ungentleness. And I do so with, with generally in two ways. One is pragmatism and the second is self-pity. So... Pragmatism, at least the way I'm using the term, is uh, the way of thinking where the ends justifies the means. So when I'm not gentle, I'll say things like, I was in a hurry, implying that in order to meet my deadline, I'm free to act however I want. Or I'll say of my ungentleness, it worked, didn't it? Or you wouldn't listen otherwise, implying that a certain behavior from the only other person is the only thing that matters no matter how I get it. Or I'll say, I was just responding to how she treated me. And on the inside, when I say that, it's usually some variation on I've got to teach her a lesson or balance the scales of fair treatment, or which are both, both basically essentially pragmatic approaches to revenge. 
And the second way of thinking I found was self-pity. And that one's a little simpler. It's just the, basically the I've had a bad day excuse. And so at least in the case of the one sinner I know best, pragmatism and self-pity are the ways of thinking behind ungentleness. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that this is what leads to most, many, uh, if not most, of the ways of acting that we would classify as ungentle, the opposite of gentleness. I also realized that pragmatism is a key component of the wisdom from below, worldly wisdom. In the passage that we're reading, James mentions uh, the wisdom from below is marked by jealousy and selfish ambition. So jealousy, of course, is closely related to self-pity, and selfish ambition is linked arm-in-arm with pragmatism. That's part of why it leads to disorder and every vile practice, as he says, because if you're just focused on, on the, getting what you want, focused on the end goal, you'll do whatever it takes to get there. That will often include unsavory actions and decisions, which we then try to justify by whatever we've achieved. Pragmatism is so baked into the wisdom of the world that we often default to it without even knowing it. It's why it's hard to think about arguing or debating nowadays without thinking about harshness. Civil discourse is a thing of the past because to be civil is not as effective. So you gain more attention with outrage, right? So the pragmatic thing is to be outraged. Pragmatism is why politicians are so uncharitable. They think I have to tear down my opponent to make myself look better. It's why we vote for harsh and quarrelsome people, because we think that they'll get more done, and the ends justifies the means. And pragmatism does more than justify ungentleness. It justifies all kinds of things. I mean, you know that Sheryl Crow song, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. It's a modern mantra that is justifying the means by the ends of happiness. Even Christians are prone to think Pragmatically, I mean, one common example is the thought that success or blessings in life or ministry means that however we got there must have been good. But that is just justifying the means by the end. It's another form of pragmatism. But if we, if we start to think that way, that, that if God brings good out of something, it automatically endorses the behavior, that's a slippery slope. I mean, by that way of thinking, we should all go sell our brothers into slavery because that's what Joseph did. I mean, what happened to Joseph, and he told his brothers that God used it for good. So if God blessed it, that means it's okay. No, God tells us we're to love our brothers, not sell them into slavery. And just because he can bring good from it does not make it okay. One problem with pragmatic thinking is that it vastly overestimates your knowledge of the future and your ability to accomplish what you will. I mean, if you're judging how you act based on outcomes, then you're assuming you know the outcomes. That's a big assumption. James addresses that kind of arrogance in chapter 4 when he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? Yet you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So he says, you don't know what tomorrow holds. And to act like you can mold the future to your will is an act of foolish arrogance. And then, what conclusion does he draw from that? 
He says, do what you know is right. It almost seems like a non sequitur, like he's randomly changing the subject. He talks about not boasting about the future, and then he says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. But I don't think he is changing the subject. I think he has an insight into the human heart to see that the same thing is being addressed. The same thing within us that makes us so confident about our future ambitions is the same thing that makes us fail to do what we know is right now and in the present. That when we're so concerned about getting where we are going, we fail to act rightly in the present. And we even excuse our failings in the name of our pursuits. But James flips that on its head. And he says, care far less about determining what lies ahead and instead be faithful where you are. In the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis imagines a demon saying, we want the whole human race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end, never honest, nor kind, nor happy now. Always taking every real gift which is offered them in the present and using it as mere fuel heaped upon the altar of the future. Pragmatism keeps us from being honest, kind, and happy now, in the present. If we are going to defeat ungentleness, if we are going to actually be gentle, we are going to need a different way of thinking than pragmatism. So let me talk about another way of thinking for a moment. We need to take an introductory look at moral philosophy, though. If you study ethics, your introductory course will teach you about three main types of ways people have historically thought about morality. And there's, there's three main categories. They each have long, fancy names, but I know I'm already losing people by talking about moral philosophy, so I won't use those. I'll just describe the main things driving them. And I have a slide, I believe, uh, to, that lists them so you can see them. Okay, so the first one Uh, The three main approaches to ethics. First is duty and rules. Second is consequences and outcomes. And the third is virtue and character. So that first one, driven by duty, is basically essentially saying that morality is rule following. Plain and simple. You can think of the Pharisees in the Bible. That was their approach. The second one, based on consequences, is the ethical version of pragmatism that I've been talking about, where the ends justifies the means. What makes a thing good or bad is the consequences or the outcomes from that thing. Biblically, I believe both of those fall short. The third one, based on virtue, is much like what Jesus taught about the heart. To truly be morally good, you have to become a kind of person, having characteristics of your very being rather than just doing certain things. Not being driven externally by mere duty and rules, nor by constantly calculating outcomes and consequences. But actually having virtue that shapes how you feel and think and act in all situations. In verse 17, when James says the wisdom from above is full of mercy. and You can take that slide now. When he says it's that the wisdom from above is full of mercy, that's not just a, a, a flourish of translation, like they could have said merciful, but they chose to say full of mercy. No, it actually says it that way in the Greek. It may be even a little stronger. The word means replete, full to the brim. Like we're being filled up with something. Like it's inside of us. It's talking about something within us. And so he pairs it with good fruits, full of mercy and good fruits. Because fruit, of course, is something that emerges out of the life and nature of the, the plant. James is saying this is who we are, not just something we do. 
And this is the antidote to pragmatism and the path to gentleness, the idea of virtue, that it is true of you regardless of the consequences because you trust God with the consequences, knowing that he is in control of the future, not you. So you just have to live as he has called you to live in the present, bearing the present cross, receiving the present grace, and then you can be gentle even when it doesn't seem to work. Through him you can be gentle even when others are harsh. Through him you can overcome evil with good, as Romans 12 says. And the inevitable question that comes with the virtue approach is, if it has to be a part of your character, a part of your heart, how do you get it? That's why some moral philosophers dismiss virtue ethics because they they see the thing as impossible, or I should say it's not workable or attainable. Like if it has to be a part of you, well then how do you get there? And that's a good point. It really is. There's a recent sitcom that's really a really clever sitcom called The Good Place, which is essentially about bad people trying to become good people. And I listened to an interview with the creator of this show and his consultant, his main consultant, who was a moral philosopher that he found. And they were talking about the story about how the two of them met. And the creator looked her up and he got lunch with her. And he, he told this moral philosopher that he wanted her input because he wanted to make a show about bad people trying to become good. And the first thing she told him uh, was that's impossible. She explained that any more philosopher will tell you that you can't become a good person by trying to be a good person. Because the only path forward there is basically fake it till you make it. But that doesn't make you a better person. It makes you better at pretending to be a good person, which is not the same. We Christians, I believe, are the only ones with a really good answer for the question posed by virtue ethics. Because what if there was one who is the source of all virtue, who is powerful enough to make a way for us to receive his virtue so that it becomes a part of us, so that we become one with him and are changed into his likeness? That is exactly what Christianity teaches. That through faith we receive Christ's life and virtue in our hearts That moral philosopher is right. That morality is not attained through pursuing morality directly. We believe that virtue is a byproduct of worship. We don't just try to be honest. We believe the God of truth, and then we find that we become trustworthy. We don't just stifle our pride. No, we serve the God who served, and we find that we become humble. We don't just work up courage We walk with the God who promised to be with us always, and when we find him at our side, we find that we are courageous. We don't just chase happiness. We rejoice in the goodness and glory of God, and we find that we become joyful. We love the God of love, and we find that we start to become loving. You gain virtue through looking to something greater than yourself. So if gentleness is to come to us, it must come by looking to a glorious and holy God who is also gentle. And that is exactly what we find in the person of Jesus. He described his own heart as gentle. He invited worn down, weary people to come to him. And he promised them that he would receive them with gentleness. 
There's a recent book that is beautifully and carefully written called uh, Gentle and Lowly about the heart of Jesus. One of our equipping courses right now is going through it. And in it, the author says, gentleness is who Christ is. It is his very heart. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. He astounds and sustains us with his endless kindness. Only, only as we walk ever deeper into this tender kindness can we live the Christian life as the New Testament calls us to. Only as we drink down the kindness of the heart of Christ will we leave in our wake, everywhere we go, the aroma of heaven and die one day having startled the world with glimpses of a divine kindness too great to be boxed in by what we deserve. I want us to be that kind of people. When I read that, makes me want to pray, God, make us that kind of people, the people who startle the world with glimpses of divine kindness. And we become such a people through the gentleness of Jesus, who Isaiah prophesied about saying, he will not quarrel or cry aloud. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. Until he brings justice to victory in his name, the Gentiles will hope. For those who are bruised, for those whose fire is smoldering rather than burning, Jesus is kind and he's gentle. And his gentleness brings hope. Hope for both the perpetrators and the victims of harsh treatment that healing and transformation is available, is possible. We are a broken and quarreling people. But through Jesus' gentleness, he is reforming us to become gentle in his embrace and through that gentleness to become peacemakers. And when I think about gentleness and peace, I often think about the Iron Giant, uh, that movie, which is one of the greatest animated movies ever. I know I'm always telling you guys about kid movies. They're great. But uh, this is definitely one of my top three. And I won't, I won't, I mean, I'm going to spoil it for you, but it's still worth watching. Right, trust me. The Iron Giant is, he's a giant living robot from outer space, uh, voiced by Vin Diesel and Vin Diesel's best performance. And the Iron Giant befriends a boy with the awesome name of Hogarth. And the, the, this Iron Giant is gentle, and he's friendly, and he's also incredibly powerful, which makes his gentle meekness all the more endearing. And um, Hogarth, his little boy friend, hides the giant in his family's uh, junkyard, and they play together, and they bond over Superman comic books. And as they're reading these comic books, one Superman villain is uh, this giant robot, evil robot. And Hogarth assures the Iron Giant that he's not like that villain. He's more like a good guy. He's like Superman. And then what they soon find out is that programmed into the giant is a reflex to transform into a terrifying killing machine anytime someone attacks him. It's just in his alien robot nature. And he, but he regrets it and despises that part of him. He does not want to be violent. He's taken Hogarth's view of him to heart. He wants to be like Superman rather than like the villain. 
But as the town and later the military learn of his existence, he realizes that they view him as a dangerous weapon, while Hogarth views him as a friend and as a hero. Near the end of the movie, he tells Hogarth, I am not a gun. But then the military attacks him because they're afraid of him. And Hogarth gets knocked unconscious in the attack, and without his friend, his, the Iron Giant's robot programming kicks in, and he becomes that violent machine that he come, has come to regret and despise. But after the fight, Hogarth wakes up, and he tells him, now is the time to show them you are good. And they learn that the pragmatic military leader has decided to launch a missile that will destroy the giant, but also destroy the town. If they have to destroy the town to stop the giant, so be it, he thinks. But the giant thinks differently. He thinks, if I have to sacrifice myself to save this town, even the town that hates me, then so be it. He remembers who Hogarth said that he is, and as he blasts himself into space to intercept the missile and be destroyed by himself in order to save the town, on his way to intercept the missile, the Iron Giant extends his arm like a superhero, and he says to himself, Superman. And he smiles. Through his friendship with Hogarth, he has an identity deeper than his violent programming. It allows him to overcome it. In the face of fear and hostility, he makes peace. He overcomes evil with good. We talked last week about what the Bible calls our flesh. It's a lot like that giant, Iron Giant's violent programming. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 says that the works of the flesh involve enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, basically everything that's the exact opposite of gentleness and peacefulness. But then he contrasts that with the works of the, the contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit, which are love and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. And then he says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Through Jesus, we have a new identity Our flesh, our old nature, our old programming was killed because he took the missile to save us. Even the people whose hostility and fear and pragmatism have broken his good world and led to his death. He gave himself for us, making peace by the blood of his cross. And this act, his act of sacrificial peacemaking is the backdrop of our new lives. It sets the tone for how we now live. James says that the wisdom from above is peaceable. And then he says that incredible statement at the end of chapter 3. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I love the agricultural imagery of planting a whole harvest of righteousness and justice through making peace. Peace requires the work and cultivation and patience of farming and growing crops. That through the hard work of peacemaking, we are sowing seeds that will grow into a whole harvest of justice and righteousness. We, in other words, are contributing to the 
great and glorious purposes of God. So the work of peacemaking takes faith and hope because farmers can plant and water, but God brings the growth. To be peacemakers, it requires faith to believe that our small faithfulness and peacemaking can actually bear incredible fruit. We believe that God can do great things with small offerings. We can sometimes have a high-minded idea of peace on earth that we sing about at Christmas time and pretend like we would use one of our three hypothetical genie wishes for. But real peace only comes through people laying down their weapons and picking up farming tools. It only comes from people committed to rolling up their sleeves and working for it in everyday life. Cultivating like a farmer, having the patience of a farmer, working the land in your own backyard, the relationships closest to you. And it reminds me of how there's, there's this pattern throughout the Old Testament of Israel overcoming enemies with tools rather than weapons. Because God was with them. And he's with us in our peacemaking. And that Old Testament theme, it culminates in his prophecy from Isaiah who, who talked about the full and final peace that God will one day bring where swords and spears will be hammered into plowshares and pruning hooks. And in keeping with that tools over weapons pattern, another prophet, Zechariah, has this strange vision uh, of enemy armies being driven off by craftsmen. And these craftsmen conquerors They find their fulfillment in our carpenter Christ, who faced the spear of Rome, wielding only the tools of his trade. Wood, nails, and he showed us the powerful path to peace. Making peace takes dying to self, taking up a cross, laying down our metaphorical weapons intended to damage and demean, and picking up tools intended to help and to heal. Laying down weapons in conflict can feel painful. It feels like a, a, like a form of dying. And then again, each time we're tempted to pick them back up and restart that conflict. We can only access the strength to be peacemakers through faith in our peacemaker, Christ whose peace was hard won by the blood of his cross. We cannot seek peace in our own strength. We all blow it, right? We fail those around us. We pass judgment. If we, if or when we are going to act as peacemakers, it is not without waging war in our hearts. That's exactly what James tells us in the next verse. The chapter division wasn't there in the original. So the next verse, the beginning of chapter 4, is just the next thing he has to say after talking about making peace. And verse 1 of chapter 4 says, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He's saying when you lack gentleness and cause divisions rather than peace, it's because what's inside of you is bubbling up. The passions of your flesh are warring within, we are, and we are to fight this war with faith. Because God has reconciled us to himself. And we have to believe that, that we are recipients of a peacemaking grace. So that we can then extend that to others. Through faith, through repentance, God is making us into a people who are capable of being peacemakers. Because he promises to go with us through suffering and death 
capital D death, but also the daily deaths of dying to self in the pursuit of peace. He gives us the promise and the hope of vindication and of resurrection, that if we join in his sufferings, we join in his resurrection. The last scene in The Iron Giant, Hogarth kept a single screw that he had found after the blast, a piece of his friend to remember him by that he kept by his bed. And uh, one night he hears a clinking at his window in the middle of the night. And he wakes up and he sees this screw tapping on the window and, like it wants out. He opens the window and it, and it goes. And the, the camera falls the direction of the screw and we see more and more pieces of metal moving in the same direction. And we come to the giant's head and suddenly his eyes open. Jesus too couldn't be stopped by death. Jesus was more than the enemy of death bargained for, and he couldn't handle him. Jesus' path to peace was through death, to resurrection. He rose from the dead, and through our faith, he unites us to himself in his victorious life. He says to us, you died with me to your old self. You are raised with me now to a new identity And like the iron giant had to whisper his new identity to himself as he sought to live it out. That is what we do. That is the wisdom from above. Knowing who you are in Jesus. So that it changes you. And empowers you to live differently. To even do the incredibly challenging work of making peace in the midst of conflict. Believe Jesus. Believe who he says he is and therefore who you can be in him. Believe him and be wise. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we are truly and deeply humbled at the lengths to which you went to make peace with us to reconcile us to yourself. Your son's gentleness is a comfort and an inspiration, but more than that, it is life-giving, life-shaping. I pray that we would truly grasp your nearness, that we would become gentle, that we would truly grasp your power so that we know with certain hope that you can and will bring forth a whole harvest of good through even our small attempts at making peace. Father, you are merciful toward us who do not deserve it. Make us a merciful people by filling us with your mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're going to take communion together, which is a solemn